0: Good morning, Maranatha. If we could make our way to our seats as we begin our corporate worship gathering. Give you all a moment to to settle down. Good morning everyone and Merry Christmas. For those who do not know me, my name is Eric and I serve as one of the pastors here. I'd like to welcome all of you as we gather to worship the Lord. Today marks the 4th week of Advent and the theme is peace. And this morning as the Lord calls us to worship, let's remember that the Son of God who took on flesh 2000 years ago came to bring peace. To sinners like you and me. Sinners who are separated from God. Sinners who are far off with no hope. Let's remember that Jesus himself is our peace. And it's through him and only through him that we have access in one spirit to our father in heaven. And with this in mind I invite you all to stand with me. If you are able. And join me in reading Psalm 29. You could follow along. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you would stir up your power. That you would be present with us this morning in great strength. Because we are greatly hindered by our sins. We ask, Lord, that your abundant grace and mercy would come quickly to help us. And that this salvation, this gracious salvation that we have in your son, that it would become the seedbed for a life of joy and gratitude. Father, we ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>
1: Brothers and sisters, we now have an opportunity to go to the Lord in prayer and and pray and confess our sins before him. Our God is a holy God, and we cannot approach him uh, just on our own merits. But we can because the King has come, Jesus. He came, he lived the perfect life, he died the death that we deserved he rose again from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we can go before our holy God knowing that and make bold confessions of uh, uh, from our sin knowing that Jesus stands there with us and that God welcomes us when we come and confess our sins honestly to him knowing that and welcoming us to do so and then forgives us through The finished work of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, this is what we get to do. Even this morning. We confess our sins to God. So please, this is a holy moment. A sacred one. A significant one. So let's settle our hearts and our minds. And let's go before the Lord in confession. Holy Lord, in this time of Advent, we confess that we're often distracted by the season's busyness. Even in the hustle just to arrive here this morning, many of us are distracted. We're distracted by the stresses of our commitments, the work, family, holiday parties, Christmas parties, vacations. That they steal our mind away from our attention towards you. We've been distracted by putting our own traditions ahead of the true meaning of Christmas, of waiting and longing for you, rejoicing in you, and we confess that we're coming unraveled, pulled apart at every angle because we've chosen our own ways, forgetting the common good, the The universal good, your true good. We're in need of a way back from the messes we make for ourselves. Because we too often have rejected your ways to true peace, to true wholeness, true love. We're lost. And we need Christ to come quickly. So come Lord Jesus, forgive us and restore us. Come, Lord Jesus, guide us and deliver us. Come, Lord Jesus, and teach us and renew us. In this season of Advent, we are reminded that the, of this season of waiting, O oh God. Teach us to wait well for you in a hope and in faithfulness. And even in joy, we pray. It's in Christ's name that we do so. Amen. God, our kind and loving Savior, has stepped in and saved us. God gave us a good bath, and we came out of it as new people, washed inside and out by the Holy Spirit. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously that we may take hold of it. God's gift has restored our relationship with God and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come. That is the hope when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you hold fast to Christ, please be assured that God hears your prayer and, and is pleased to forgive us of all unrighteousness and cleanse us. Brothers and sisters, as we have made confession but also have heard the assurance of God, now we get to come to scriptures and read it. Hopeful and longing to hear from God, and so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. We'll read it together, and if you're able, let's stand, and uh, you can follow along as I read. But please stand for the for the reading of God's Word. It's a Psalm, song of ascent. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it, heard of it in Ephrath, Ephrathath. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your testing place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which we will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their their sons also forever shall sit on your throne." For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is God's word.
2: Oh, the mercy our God has shown. To those who sit in death's shadow, the sun on high pierced the night, born was a cornerstone. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child.
3: Catechism that we've been um, doing as our memorizing um, as a as a congregation. So, I'll read the question and you can read the underlined uh, answer. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments?
1: Amen.
3: Let's continue singing together. in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we worship you this Christmas season. Lord, you you are the greatest gift. You are the gift, the one and only gift, the one and only begotten Son of the Father that was the gift for us, a gift that we did not deserve nor earn, in fact quite the opposite. And you are the gift that was given from heaven to us, presented not in a in a on a throne or in an earthly kingdom but presented to us in a manger because that is God's way the humble way the low way and lord we worship you and we give our gifts to you lord we give our gifts of time and service and our worship to you because you are worthy because you are the one who was mighty and who became man and who entered into this broken world to save your people. God, we worship you. We thank you for being the gift of all gifts and to be uh, our savior. And we, we, we thank you for this opportunity to remember that gift and to remember the gift of your gospel and that we can uh, gather as a church to sing praises to you and to one another. And we pray that you would edify us and fill us Uh, with your spirit and you would edify us with your word through your servant Michael Malanga today. And thank you, Lord, that we are just gathered here as as family members. We pray for those who could not be here as well that you would watch over them and their health and and their time away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you are seated, say Merry Christmas to one another with a smile and say hello.
2: Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas Christmas, indeed. M-Kids, you are dismissed. And if parents, if you could help the volunteers out, if your children need to go to the bathroom, please take them to the bathroom. And I would also like to note that the hospitality team, they ask, this is after service, if you be present, parents be present with your children when getting food, I will remind you once again later. One announcement before I invite Pastor Michael to preach, for those who are new and for those who would, who want to learn more about our church, please fill out a connection card. You could do so online or in the back. We would love to get to know you. Find out how we can serve you, pray for you. So please fill out a connection. We would love to get to know you. That's all for the announcements. Pastor Michael, I would like to invite you to preach.
4: Well, Merry Christmas once again. There we go. There we go. It's good to see everyone. Let's let's pray. Our heavenly Father, it is a blessing to sing songs of of adoration and praise and celebration. On this uh, day, this fourth Sunday in Advent, uh, looking forward to a, a worldwide celebration uh, by your church of the birth of our Savior on Christmas Day, we thank you, Father, that it is indeed by Christ's all-sufficient merit that you indeed will raise us to your heavenly throne, as uh, the hymn writer has written, uh, "Born." to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is by your sufficient merit that we can experience a rebirth, a second birth, one that is by grace through faith, one that enables us to stand forgiven, to confess our sins and be reminded and receive again the forgiveness that is ours through trust and faith in you. We pray for uh, our community lord god as churches this day will be celebrating this fourth sunday at advent as they will be gathering for christmas eve services and be celebrating the birth of your son may the gospel go forth father from churches in our community that celebrate the the truth of your word and proclaim boldly uh, the grace that is found in christ we pray for our nation lord god at a time when it seems there are many things that are going in the, the wrong direction. <clears throat> we ask, O oh Lord God, that you would help us to be salt and light, to encourage our neighbors, <clears throat> to remember, O oh Lord, that what we can do, and where we can ma- make the most impact is locally. It's with our friends and our families. There are things, Lord God, that are beyond our control but on a local level, Lord God, we can share the gospel. We can be salt and light. We can encourage family and friends. We can pray. We can show forth uh, the love of Christ. <clears throat> we do continue to pray, Lord God, that you would bless the ministry of Maranatha and that we, oh Lord, would uh, deepen uh, in a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ that we as a church would be Filled with your spirit and empowered by him to be living testimonies to the grace and the glory of God. Bless now, Father, the preaching of your word, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. On this fourth Sunday at Advent, we're going to look at the story of Christ's birth as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23... and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How did you come to name your children? When, uh, when our first child was born, our, our son Matthew, we named him Matthew because, well, <clears throat> I'll be honest, it flowed nicely with Malenga. <laughs> uh, we also like the name. And then we also found out later on that Matthew means gift of God. When it came to naming our daughter, who was a surprise being born a girl because Melanga's only had boys at this time, uh, we named her Elizabeth. No E, just Elizabeth. Uh, And that's because of a high school girl that uh, Jill had hired to do some work at the dental office where she worked in Massachusetts. Uh she, had a, she was a very sweet and kind girl. She was a cheerleader, and she had her name Liz embroidered on her cheerleader jacket. And Liz, Jill liked that, and she said, if you ever have a daughter, we would name her Elizabeth. And so we did. Only afterward do we find out that Elizabeth means God is my oath or God is my promise. So then when Jeff was born, our third son, I wanted to name him Jeffrey with a G. But Jill thought that was a bit pretentious. So we named him Jeffrey with a J, uh, which I found out is derived from the name Godfrey, uh, which means divinely peaceful. I did, however, get to choose Jeffrey's middle name, which I really like, Garrett. It's a Norse name, meaning defender. In Old English, it means he who rules with the spear. Now parents choose the names for their children for a variety of reasons. Some may choose, as we did a name from the Bible and naming our son Matthew, some because of what the name means, some because they want to honor a a beloved family member or friend. Uh, But whatever the reason, most parents, I think, name their children without ever thinking that their child will become or do what their name implies. That is not the case with names in the Bible. For example, when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to be afraid to marry Mary because the child that, is, that she's carrying will be born and he will be a son, and then the angel tells Joseph, you will name him Jesus, which is really taking the right of naming away from Joseph because it's God's son that we're talking about here. And the angel tells Joseph that she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And then Matthew adds this commentary right after that, when he says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So those two names really describe, if you will, what Jesus will do, and they will determine also his destiny. Jesus, as we know, is, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. It means God is salvation. Back then, we realized, too, that Jesus or Yeshua was a, very, was a fairly common name among uh, Hebrews and among the Jews. It would be consistently uh, always among the top ten boy names in Israel. Uh, Emmanuel is a Hebrew word meaning God with us. And in context, in the way Matthew describes it here, he's referring to the prophet Isaiah, Emmanuel is more uh, more a title than it is a middle name, uh, more a nickname. So Jesus is not Jesus Emmanuel, he's Jesus, but the fact that he is in fact the God who saves, he's also the God with us. Put those two names together, Jesus and Emmanuel. God is salvation, God with us. And one thing becomes abundantly clear. Jesus' name is his mission. Uh, And if I were were D.A. Carson, those of you who know D.A. Carson will get this. The rest of you, just bear with me. You would say that Jesus' name is his raison d'être. It's his reason to be. He is, in fact, God, our salvation, sent to save his people from their sins. His name tells us what he will do, that he is sent to rescue us by paying the penalty for our sins, that Jesus' name is his calling. He is sent by God the Father to deliver us from our sins. And when it comes to the birth of Jesus, particularly celebrating the birth of Jesus, the file that exists on our cultural hard drive, the one that contains the reason why Jesus is born has been corrupted. Who wants to sing, after all, about Jesus saving us from our sins when it's much more fun to sing, All I Want for Christmas is You? Why ponder the theology of God and sinners reconciled when chestnuts roasting on an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose just makes you feel warm and cozy all over? I'm no Scrooge, mind you, when it comes to those kinds of songs particularly the songs that our culture sings at this time of year, it's just the fact that most of the songs, if not all the songs that our culture sings at this time of year are woefully off-message and they are woefully off-key. That's likely due to the fact that the songs that they sing, the ones that really matter, the ones that the Bible teaches us to sing, are always or most of the time played in the minor key because they describe why Jesus has come. Because his name is his mission. He has come to deliver us from our sins. As the angel told Mary, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of the sermon, That, that description of Jesus' mission. Because if the big idea that emerges from this text is that Jesus' name is his mission, his mission is described in that statement. He shall save his people from their sins. So let's just break that sentence down a couple of words at a time. So he will save. to understand the reason why Jesus is born, we have to go back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. There in Genesis 2, we read that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into Adam, and the man became, the Bible says, a living soul. In that moment when God breathes into Adam, that moment establishes a unique relationship between God and the creature that he has now formed out of the dust of the ground with his hands and breathed his spirit into. This relationship was broken when Adam disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That sin that Adam committed Severed the relationship; it severed the fellowship with God that he had enjoyed up until that moment. When Jesus is born; he comes to restore and to repair that breach, to put that relationship back together. He comes, does Jesus, to establish a new covenant, a, a new relationship with God. Now you read that account in Genesis, Genesis two, and then Genesis three, where they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and. And it's only natural to wonder, look, if everything God made he declared to be good, then why did God forbid and not allow Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, well, the, the Puritan Thomas Boston gives us an excellent answer as to why God prohibited Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Boston writes this, the forbidden fruit... In this paradise of Eden was a gracious provision to protect Adam from falling. God made man lord of the world, but Adam needed to know by a particular visible sign that God had sovereign dominion over all. It was for man's safety and an act of infinite wisdom and grace to keep him from one single tree as a visible testimony that he must yield all to his creator, so that while he saw himself as Lord of creation, he might not forget that he was still God's subject. Adam forgot that he was God's subject. And when he forgot, he sinned. And as a result, both he and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. If you want to update it and sort of... Use a, a modern metaphor, you could say that sin cut off their Wi Fi signal. They lost their cell connection. No bars. All contact with God from their end was lost. And we have been on a desperate search for something to restore and replace that connection ever since. We try to replace it with work, we try to replace it with money, we try to replace it with sex. We try to replace it with the pursuit of happiness, doing whatever we want. You read about this in Ecclesiastes. He describes this pursuit of trying to find something that will fill this void. We try it with drugs. We try it with power. Anything. And yet none of these things, none of these things in the end works. None of them repairs that connection. None of them restores that relationship. And that's the bad news. That's what sin does. The good news is Jesus was born to restore that connection with God. From the moment that God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, he began searching for people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he searched for Abel. And then then he searched for Enoch. Then he searched for Noah. Then he searched for Abraham. He searched for Joseph. He searched for Moses. He searched for David whom he described as a man after his own heart. He searched for Solomon, to whom he gave wisdom and permission to build the the glorious first temple. The story of the Bible, in other words, is, is the story of one long, continual search by God for men and women who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in the Old Testament, God carries on this search in a, in, a, in a sense, in an impersonal way, through angels and through the, uh, the, the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ as the angel of the Lord. But in the New Testament, God ultimately decides that the best way for him to undertake this search is to enter our time, enter our space, enter our world, bearing our flesh with our blood coursing through his veins. That in a biological sense, Mary is his mother, but in a the, in the larger spiritual sense, God is his father. And so he comes to us as God in the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes man so that he could find men and women who will worship God the Father in spirit and truth. He is, if you will, the very embodiment, the very enfleshment of the good shepherd, coming not only to seek and to save that which is lost, But then when he finds us, to lay down his life for us. Only to take it up again. So that we who lay down our life for him. Trust in his promise that he will raise us up with him. So that we experience life now. And have the assurance of promise of life beyond this life. When we close our eyes and breathe our last here. So that the last thing we see on earth. Maybe loved ones gathered around us, but the first thing we see when we open our eyes in paradise is the face of our Savior. Let's go back to Genesis for a moment. The Bible says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. God said, let there be, and it was so. You go through Genesis 1. Every star and galaxy, every planet and moon, every mountain and valley, every river and stream, every lake and ocean, every atom and molecule, right down to the smallest particle in the universe, to the largest in the universe. Everything, every living creature that walks, crawls, swims, and flies, everything created by the spoken word of God, except one. There is one being, there is one creature whom God did not speak into existence, and that is Adam, man. The Bible describes it as God, if you will, stooping down and... St- just like that, <laughs> with that ominous noise, right? Scooping, scooping up earth and forming it. And then, having formed it, breathes into it. Ponder that for a moment. God created everything in the universe by speaking it into existence, except us. He scoops up a handful of dirt, creates us in his own image and likeness, and then he breathes his spirit into us. I, I don't work with my hands f- for a living. But I've known people who do. Carpenters, craftsmen, potters, gardeners. They get their hands involved with what they're doing. There's an intimacy and a, and a, and a, a, a tangibleness that takes place when you are interacting with the medium that you are creating, whether it's clay or dirt or wood or marble, if you're a sculptor, or a paintbrush when you're painting in canvas. You're you're involved with what you're doing. There's an intimacy there. And this is what happens when God creates us. This is why sin is such a vile and awful thing because it severs that intimacy that he established with us. He breathes into us his own spirit. And there's a sense in which Adam's creation foreshadows his redemption. Because as God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him a living spirit, so God, by his grace, comes into our flesh to redeem the very flesh that he made. So that when when we as elders, when we exhort and encourage you to, to, to read your word, to read the Bible, why are we doing that? We're doing that because, for now, the most intimate way, the most tactile way that we can have contact with the God who made us is through His Word. Certainly, His Spirit, which enlivens us and brings to life, which is already living in that Word, but there's an intimacy, there's a connection to be established that God creates in the moment that we read His Word. That there is, as the psalmist says, deep calling to deep. God created us in His own image and likeness, but we have sinned uh, against Him, and in sinning we have lost our way. Our spiritual GPS is corrupted. It doesn't exist. Thinking ourselves wise, we become fools. Believing we know the way, we wander farther off course. We imagine ourselves to be free when in fact we are enslaved by our pride, our greed, our lust and the desire for power and control, TikTok and Instagram fame. We keep taking the blue pill and wonder why things keep getting worse and don't change. Why do do we search for significance? Why are we so driven to find a, a purpose for our life? Why do we hunger and thirst for something that is more permanent than the cotton candy promises offered us by this world? It's because you and I are created in the image and likeness of God. And that, that breath of His Spirit has been bent by sin. Why are we restless? Because we don't find our rest until we find our rest in God. Augustine had it right. Our soul is restless, O God, until it finds its rest in thee. That's why Jesus is born. He comes to give us that rest. He comes to reconnect us with that intimate relationship and fellowship that God established long ago when he he formed Adam out of the ground and breathed into him so that he became a living soul. Because there is more to us than flesh and blood, There is that spirit element that God has introduced into us by the fact that he has breathed into us. It's what Peter would talk about in terms of being born again and having become partakers of the divine nature by God's grace. And here's something else that's wonderful about Jesus, that he takes this everyday name, Jesus, which is a common name at the time, and he transforms it by the very definition of that name into something extraordinary. He takes a common name and he makes it holy forever. He is the Jesus. He is the Yeshua. He is the God is salvation. He is the Savior. But he does more than just take a name and transform it. He takes ordinary, common people. People from whom God raised up from the dust. He takes earth people and he makes them holy people. He sets us apart to serve him, to honor him, to worship him, to declare his praises to those who have not yet had their eyes open and their heart rent with the great news that God has indeed made a way to be good again, to be holy again, to be right again. Jesus' name is his mission. He will save, and he will save his people from their sins. And sometimes we read the Bible, and we we can look at certain words, we can read certain sentences and phrases, and we can miss them because they're so familiar to us. So, for example, when the angel tells Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, we miss it. Did you catch it? Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't say Jesus will save Israel. It doesn't say that Jesus will save Judah. doesn't say that Jesus will save only Jews. The angel says Jesus will save his people from their sins. Begs the question, who are his people? You have to read further into the New Testament to find out the answer to that question, and it's the Apostle Paul who gives us an answer in Galatians 3, 27 through 29. There he writes, for as he's writing to these Galatians who are non-Jews, they're Gentiles, and he tells them, "...for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ." There is neither Jew or, nor Greek, nor there is neither slave nor free, there is neither uh, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christ, here's the, here's the thing. If you're a Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Abraham's heirs, Abraham's offspring, not by virtue of physical descent or bloodline. But in the same way that Abraham was justified before God, it is by faith. It is by faith in what Christ has done and continues to do by virtue of his Spirit in his redeeming people and saving them from their sins. His people, in other words, is everyone who has made a profession of faith in Christ. His people are everyone who was baptized into Jesus, everyone who was born again by grace through faith. His people is everyone who believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. His people is everyone who put their trust in Christ as Savior and worships Him as Lord. His people is everyone whom Jesus ransomed for God from every tribe and language, people and nation, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female, young and old, child and adult. But that's rather general. General. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gets very specific as to the kind of people that are now his people by faith. A very specific list is found for us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. These Corinthians, these Greeks, these Gentiles, who thought they had it all because they had been born again and they had the Spirit and their spiritual pride had gotten the better of them, Paul, in giving them this list, takes them down many notches in order to remind them that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And such were some of us. Every Advent is an opportunity to experience the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The Word become full of grace and truth. It's an opportunity to remind ourselves and to be reminded, and such were some of us. The past tense is critical here because we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And if you have not, this is an opportunity to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified in the name of Christ. An opportunity to share the good news and to invite others into that marvelous relationship, to understand that Jesus saves his people from their sins. We don't like talking about sins at Christmas time, that's for next year. That's Lent. That's Easter. That's the Good Friday. And yet, Jesus' name is his mission. It's described for us at the very start here in Matthew that he came to save us from our sins by experiencing the full spectrum of our humanity. We've sung about it. He felt pain, he felt isolation and loneliness, in grief, which is unimaginable to us, because <laughs> remember, before he inhabits our flesh, he is God of the universe. How do you relate to that? It's like if you if you have ever I'm, I'm sure many of you have you visited a, a place and you just you you're not from there, and you're just the the, the customs are a little different and you, you, you interact, you enjoy, but there's, a, there's a, a hollowness, there's an isolation, there's a loneliness. It's like, these people don't know me. I don't really, I don't know how I can know them. Jesus felt that. He tasted joy as well. He tasted happiness, laughter, and fellowship. He wasn't always somber. He laughed. He also wrestled with the complex dynamics of family relationships. Remember, early on, his mother and his brothers thought that he had lost his mind. And in John 7, his, <laughs> Jesus knows the pain of sibling rivalry because even his brothers didn't believe in him and teased him about, why don't you go up to the feast and show yourself to everyone? So Jesus knows that pain and that loneliness, that isolation. And lastly, before he began his public ministry, Jesus did work as a carpenter. He earned his bread the same way that Adam did, the same way that we still do, by the the sweat of our brow, or by typing on a keyboard, or by driving a truck, or by standing over a body in an operating room, working hard. He knew what it meant to own and operate a small business. He paid taxes. You You think we're living under an oppressive regime? Try living under Rome when the tax collector was your next-door neighbor who sold out to the Romans because he understood that as a Jew, the Romans would protect him and that he could extort from you whatever he wanted by way of tax, give the Romans their share, and keep the rest for himself. That was Matthew. That's why tax collectors were so despised in the first century, particularly by Jews, because if Rome asked for 30%, they would take 60 and keep 30 for themselves. So Jesus knew that. He dealt with salesmen. He dealt with middlemen. He dealt with supply chain problems. He dealt with customers who didn't pay their bills or, they, or who tried to pay less than what they thought his work was worth. In other words, he experienced every kind of frustration, struggle, problem, and personality on the face of the earth, yet he never sinned. And he came to save us by experiencing all of that. He had calluses on his hands and on his feet. He experienced everything we have and will, except he never sinned, never broke God's commandments, never looked for loopholes in God's laws, never, not once ever. That's why he is the perfect sacrifice The great high priest, the perfect high priest who makes full atonement, full satisfaction for sins. Jesus' name is his mission. He will save his people from their sins. Because sin is our biggest problem. It's the thing that separates us from God, it's the quiet thing that has to be said out loud. He didn't come to save us from a foreign enemy he didn't come to save us from a deadly virus or an oppressive government he didn't come to save us from a bad self-image a difficult marriage a boring job or even unemployment he came to save us from our sins sin is nothing more than a bold-faced high-handed hard-hearted rebellion against what god says is right and good and just it severs our relationship with God. And once it severs our relationship with God, it spreads like a virus. But here's the thing. Unlike most viruses, which, as we seem to be finding out with more and more variants, unlike most viruses which tend to maybe increase with transmission but decrease in terms of lethality as they mutate, the more sin mutates, the more deadly it becomes. Until, as the reformers would tell us, sin has infected every aspect of our being so that it binds our will, corrupts our heart, and it deadens our soul. It blinds us to the glory of God. It makes us deaf to the voice of God. And it prevents us from speaking the praises of God. No matter what we do then, no matter how hard we try, we can't kill it. We need someone else to do it for us. We can't put ourselves right with God either. We need someone else to do that too. We need someone who is God with us to do it. We need someone who is salvation incarnate. We need Jesus. We need His blood because it's the only cure for what ails us. His blood is the only thing that frees our will, that purifies and regenerates our heart and loosens our tongue to speak God's praises. It's the only thing that resurrects our soul and guarantees the resurrection of our bodies. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. Only Jesus can make us holy before a holy God. Only Jesus can put us right before a righteous God. That's why he came, because his name is his mission, to save his people from their sins. A few years ago, um, you may, they may still run every now and again, but um, the Geico Insurance Company ran a series of commercials, uh, all ending with the punchline, it's what you do. So, for example, they would show a fisherman going on about you know, this huge fish that he caught, and it's only about this size. And he says, if you're a fisherman, you tell tales. It's what you do. If you're Peter Pan, you don't grow old. It's what you do. My favorite is uh, two favorites. This one is a guy running in the desert. He falls into some quicksand, and there's a cat watching him sink. And he says, go get help. Go get help. Run, boy. And the tagline is, if you're a cat, you ignore people. That's <laughs> what you do. But my all-time favorite is when a goat named Rick is blamed for an assembly line, assembly line mishap in a peanut butter factory. The goat is standing on the lines wearing a hairnet. This is a screaming goat as well, if you ever heard those. And the narrator says if something goes wrong, you find the scapegoat. It's what you do. If you're Jesus, you become the scapegoat. And you save your people from their sins. It's what you do because your name is your mission. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, the reason why we can sing joy to the world is because Christ has set us free in a joyous way to worship you, to honor you. And so we thank you that his name is his mission, that he has saved us from our sins. May we, Lord God, with a great joy uh, proclaim that to our friends, our neighbors, and loved ones and give you thanks
3: Sorry about that. Uh, let's all rise and sing a song together.
0: standing. Church I would like to remind us that we do have an opportunity to respond to God's gracious work in our lives by giving and you can do so in person in the back or online and as I encourage you to give I want to read a passage from Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So with that in mind, church, I want to remind us that Christ is ultimately our treasure. Let's give in response to this good news. Before the benediction, a reminder for parents, please pick up your children from MKIDS. And once again, hospitality does ask, they ask that parents would be present with children when picking up food. Now to close, hear this benediction. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Merry Christmas, Samantha. Go in peace.